Okay, thank you, Greg. <clears throat> thank you this morning. Good to see you. It's always good to see your faces on Sunday morning. It's nice to get things back to normal. Karen and I actually were able to go to our boys' last basketball game. You know, Virginia's in the basketball now and starting their football season. We got to go to their last basketball game <clears throat> in another state. Uh, happened to be West Virginia, home of the free. But anyway, they started their season and there was this crowd. And one of the people there came over and I overheard them saying this to somebody else. They said, this is our first game. Our governor in West Virginia released some of the restrictions. He said, life almost feels normal. Hot dogs, popcorn. He said, this, this is wonderful. People cheering, talking. And I just thought, thank God. You know, that's what church ought to be like on Sunday morning when we come together. We should be so glad to see one another. We should be thankful. We've waited all week. We've lived in the world and worked with people all week, haven't we? And now we come together and we find unity in our Savior. We're so thankful for what He did for us. We sing praise to Him because of what He did. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. There's none within ourselves. Let's never exalt ourselves and think that we're so holy that we're going to be like a magnet. Any holiness we have, we give credit to who? To our Savior. But we come together and we encourage one another and we share with one another. And we come to hear God's Word. We want to be challenged. And this morning, I don't want to waste your time. I want to share something with you as I look at this silly phone. And I want you to know I'm going to share God's Word with you. And I'm going to preach for 40 minutes. 40 minutes. I usually get an hour and a half when I teach something like this, but I have to restrict it to 40 minutes. So this message is in two parts. So if you came for part one, you have to come back for part two. But I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to share something this morning that, you know, I hope when you come to church, by the way, and you come to hear God's Word, I hope you don't just come to go, well, I wonder what they're going to say this morning. I, wonder what. I hope you come to say, oh, God, don't let, me leave unchanged that's why we come to hear god's word that's why we come together i told you a famous preacher vance havner said he had never been to a sermon that he didn't get anything from but he come awful close many times but this morning we want to share something that's going to change your life now i don't want to promise a cannon and out come a pea so i'm gonna get right to it okay what is it that God wants us to do? We've been in a two-part series on discipleship. It's going to be stretched to four. Four parts. Last week, what did we talk about? We talked about the importance of being in the vine. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, you're going to have to abide in me, right? Because apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything without me. You're going to have to abide in me. You're going to have to let my power flow through you. And you're going to have to appreciate my family and what I have allowed you to do. I'm not treating you like a servant anymore. I'm treating you like a son. I'm telling you what I'm doing in your life and through your life and what I want to do. And I want the Father to be glorified in your life by bearing much fruit. No mystery. He took the mystery out. So now we're going to ask the question. Last week's question was, are we willing to stay in the vine? This week's question is, what is a disciple and are we willing to be one? 
Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the church is given this command by Christ, which is often referred to as the Great Commission. Now, churches don't normally preach this until missions conference. When we think about supporting missionaries overseas in Africa or Russia, places we can't go, we appeal to this verse, by and large, to send missionaries. Fine, that's fine. But let me shatter the belief that this is only about foreign missions. This is a command that he gave to the church. And what is the command? It is to make disciples. Now, I've preached this many times in our church, but there are five great commission passages. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. Five times the church is given the great commission. In each commission, there is a different emphasis. For example, in Luke and in Acts, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, the emphasis is on how they're going to be able to do it. It's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will stay in the upper room until power has come upon you. He will enable you to do that. So that emphasis of the Great Commission was upon empowerment, enablement. But in Matthew 28... It wasn't about the enabling. It was about what we were to do. We were to make disciples. So this morning we're going to ask a question. What is a disciple? And what is the difference between a disciple and a believer? Is there a difference? Now, by the way, I shared in the early service. By the way, I've preached twice. and I know I was a little animated in the first service because I can feel my voice leaving. That's all right. But in the first service, I was sharing with our, our folks that this great commandment is not a great suggestion. This is not something that Jesus tells the church. If you feel like doing this now, you know, arrange yourselves and your schedules to where if you feel like doing this, you do it. It is not the great suggestion. It is the great commandment. We, and I say we, I mean every one of us are commanded to make disciples. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's look at the text this morning. Listen to what happened. This verse always puzzles me. If you know the context here, in John chapter 20, on the Sunday night that Jesus returned after he rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples in the upper room and he told them, after he had given his word to them, go to Galilee and I will meet you there. So when you go from Jerusalem to Galilee, obviously you go north, right? Pretty good little trip if you've ever been there. We've been there. Go to a certain mountain in Galilee and I will give you a further command. They went. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We know from other passages that it wasn't just the eleven. There were more there. For example, read 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul lets us know that there was 500 people that were present at one time in Christ's appearance. So there were others here. But he appears to them. Notice what the text says and read it carefully. We read the Bible so fast, don't we? And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But, but some doubted. Now stop for a minute. Some doubted? I thought these were grounded, affirmed, certain, sure disciples that were this, that, and the other. 
What does that mean, some doubted? Is it possible that a believer can have doubts? Is it? You say, well, I don't know. Let's just go ahead and say, yes, it is, it is possible that a believer can have doubts. We can doubt lots of things. You ever seen tragedy strike in someone's house? If you haven't, you surely haven't been in the pastorate. I've seen tragedy strike in people's house and it just shake them to the core and they doubt God's goodness. Or they see things happen and they doubt God. But they doubt it. I personally think that what happened was they saw Jesus crucified on the cross and butchered and slaughtered. And when they saw him again, they said, there is no way that some doubted. Now let's get to the text. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Can can I stop for a minute? All authority. What is authority? By the way, I don't even know if I want to get off on this. I do. This past week in Congress, you all understand what happened in the House this week? I mean, I want to be relevant too. The Equality Act passed our House this week and is going to our Senate. Most Americans don't even have a clue what the Equality Act is. But it's basically a set of ridiculous rules and laws that revolve around the sexual revolution. And basically what it does with no religious exemption. Are you all hearing me? This ought to get under every Christian's crawl. With no religious exemption, it blocks hate speech against anything that they say is right. In other words, anything in the new sexual revolution, LGBTQIAC, and keep on going down the list, that anybody says anything against is hate speech. And I could go on down the line, folks. It actually puts the word sex in the same civil rights amendment with discrimination. That means that if it's passed... Are you all hearing me? Your pastor and this church and every other Bible-believing teaching church is going to have to hew the line. And we will pay the price. Now what can you do? Sit there and bite your fingernails off? No, you can do what every American can do. You can call your senator and tell them to vote that bill down. We ought to be blowing their phones up. Blowing their phones up. Every Christian ought to blow their senator's phone. I don't care if he's a Republican or a Democrat. It's not about Republican or Democrat. But here's what made my my crawl itch this week. Jerry Nadler. Jerry Nadler. You know who he is? Well, look him up. Jerry Nadler this week, as he was trying to push this bill through Congress, a couple of House representatives stood up and said, Sir, we just want to talk here. And by the way, you can go read the transcript or watch it on the video. He said, to pass this bill is basically to take what the United States has been built on for years and years, that Almighty God created people male and female, and He gave us a biological sex. And to do this is basically to go right contrary to God's will. And Jerry Nadler said, God's will has no place in this Congress. Yeah, let that sink in. That is what's ruling our legislative body that ought to be across every news network. 
God's will. You know, when, when a man stands up and says, God's will is not doing this in our Congress. I know an arrogant king that said that in the book of Daniel. You know, by the way, we were just preaching through Daniel, weren't we? You know what happened to him? Now, why do you say all that? Well, look at the text. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority. Do you know the difference between power and authority? I can have power with no authority. Here's an example. Let's say I'm packing heat this morning. And I walk up to, to you and I pull my pistol out and I stick it up to you and I say, all right, give me all your money. And you go, oh, he's got a gun. He'll kill me. That's power. That's power. Authority is when somebody has the backing of the law, the government, they have a right like a police officer to go in and do something that they are bound and swore to do. If they go and hold a gun on somebody and say, put your hands up, not only do they have the power to tell you to do that, they have the authority. Now, you hear me closely. There are a lot of people, Congress and all, who have lost this as the authority. Authority means the right to tell you what to believe and how to behave. And we've lost that in our country. People used to say the Bible is the sole authority. What does that mean? It means it's the only thing that has the right to tell you what to believe and how to behave. God's holy word. We've lost it. We've lost it. I could go down a rabbit trail here. We, we let it slip away, didn't we? We Christians let it slip away. America is an anomaly. Never has there been a nation like this. We let it slip away. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, and now what are we to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples. And we are to do it of all, are y'all watching how I'm reading this? Of all ethnicities. That word nations is not about geographies. It's not about the continent of Asia, the continent of South Africa. It's not about that. It is the word ethnos. Ethnicity. You are to make disciples of all ethnicities. You see, we don't need, Christians don't need bills. We shouldn't need bills. You know what that's saying? That's saying, white person, you are to give the gospel to the black person. Black person, you're to give the gospel to the white person. Jewish person, you're to give the gospel to the Russian, to the German. German, you're to give the gospel to the Jew. You know, by the way, you want to talk about equality. Jesus set the standard for equality. He said, when you become a follower of mine, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Can I go on down the list? Black and white. There is no distinction. You are one. And we all stand as helpless, hopeless sinners who all fall short of the glory of God except for our perfect righteousness in Jesus. And when we have His righteousness, we are to share that with other people. 
And that's what it means to make a disciple. We are to go. You are to go into all ethnicities. And you are to do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, baptism, if you read the other passages, implies that you're preaching the gospel. Telling them about the death, burial, and resurrection is the payment for sin. As a result of that belief, baptism was the action. So within this word, baptism is the concept of you are to share the gospel with them. When they believe, you are to baptize them. There was no such thing as an unbaptized believer in the New Testament, by the way. It was the, it was the act that signified obedience. The first thing you do after you trust Christ as your Savior is you go in the water of baptism. To not go in the water of baptism is to say that you are not going to submit to what Jesus tells you to do. I was like that at one time in my life. You know that? You say, well, I didn't know that about you. Well, now you do. But when I found out that it was wrong, I did it. And God blessed my life. Baptized them in the name of the Father. Notice this singular, in the name. Not the names. In the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now notice what he says. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So our responsibility, let me go to this screen, is we are to be going... In our life, intentional, with purpose. What is our purpose? To be sharing the gospel with people, having them believe, then baptizing them as a result of their faith and trust in Christ, and then we are to teach them. What are we to teach them? Jesus said, all that I have instructed them. Now, by the way, I'm not going to get into this. If I were in a classroom with you, I'd make you, when was Matthew written? What is the prior revelation that Jesus was referring to? By the way, I've heard people go through this list. All that I've commanded. People fight over how many commands Jesus had. Some say 48. Some say 49. Others say 355 that I read. Argue, argue, argue over how many commands. Stop all that ridiculousness. All you have to do is go to the upper room and read John 14 through 17. And Jesus told his disciples, I have many things left to say to you, but you can't bear them now. There's going to be the rest of the New Testament that's going to be written to give you instruction on how to live your life, what you're to believe, how do you... You know, it wasn't just defined to the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the New Testament is just as inspired. And when Jesus spoke through Paul and Luke and John, it was just as powerful as His words. So a believer needs to know that, by the way. Don't be just strapped to a few passages with red ink on them. you got the whole New Testament. But as a believer, if we're going to teach people, are y'all listening to me? we got to know what it says. Now I'm afraid, as, as Christians, and I'm, I'm here with you, we know more about our favorite TV show that we know about God's Word. See, these are the kind of sermons where preachers get in trouble. I'm, I'm not, listen to me carefully here, I'm not headhunting you this morning. As your pastor, I am lovingly helping you. You want to call it admonish? I'm, I'm admonishing you. Get in God's Word. You'll never grow. You'll never want to share it with anybody. You won't know what to do with your children. 
You know, every parent goes through this stage in their life. They want some magic, something that will help fix their children. Listen to me, Mom. Listen to me, Dad. You are that. And that's why you bring them to a good church because you get other people involved in their life. And when a child gets to a certain age, they don't want to hear you. They don't want to hear you. Now, it's not rebellion. It, well, maybe it is some rebellion, but you know they've heard it and they've heard it and they've heard it. This is the value of a church. Then you get another man of God or a woman of God who comes by and tells them the same thing you say. And the child says, oh, do you know what such and such told me? And as a parent, we go, I've told you that for 15 years. But listen to me, they didn't have ears to hear. Now notice, going, baptizing, teaching, all that I have commanded you. And what's the promise? What's the promise as, the, as we do this in our daily life? What's the promise? I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now we could argue here, and by the way, I've heard some scholarly arguing that this command was only for the apostles and the first part of the church. Well, the rebuttal against that is Christ was going to be with them to the end of the age. What's the, what, what age? What age? Is this the church age until he returns? That's my, my belief. So I think the command is for the church. Are you ready for this? I'm violating all homiletical rules this morning, by the way. When pastors take preaching classes, they tell you to go in and stay on one thing, give people two or three things, and don't give them more, more than that and let them go. I'm violating all that this morning. I'm, I'm bringing you into the laboratory because I want you to see some of the work. I, I would rather teach you how to fish than feed you a fillet. But I began to do a search through God's Word. And by the way, I'm not being arrogant here, but I have studied for several years on both informal and formal levels. And can I share something with you? We all learn every day that we're teachable. Can I share something with you that I learned over the past two weeks? Do you know that the word disciple is not used outside the book of Acts in the rest of the epistles? Search it. Test me out. In three verses, it's used in a different form but it's not the word disciple. Why is it not used? Well, that's a whole other sermon. I'm not even going to go there this morning. Very interesting. The church is told to make disciples, and boy, they did in the book of Acts. But when you get out to the epistles, the word disciple is not mentioned one time. You say, well, you've done turned that rock over, then go under it. I am next week. But you go under it this week. Why? Okay, good. Going, baptizing, believing. So if you take those three participles, going, baptizing, believing, this is our responsibility. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore make disciples of all ethnicities, and I am with you always to the end of this age. I am there with you. We call it the great co-mission. What is a co-mission? Where two people are doing something together. He is working and living in us to replicate Himself in us so that when we meet someone else, we can help pass that on to them, right? Y'all with me? Everybody needs to stand up like they made you do. And, you know, I know what it's like to sit there and endure, but I'm not finished yet. So if you don't get this part, 
you're going to miss what I, what I, the whole thing that I intended to say. Go and make disciples. What is a disciple? Well, if we go back to this historical context, a disciple was what we would call today a modern-day apprentice. How many of y'all watch Mountain Men? Well, I'm sorry, I watch Mountain Men. It's where these bunch of old guys do things the old-fashioned way. They scrape logs. They do everything by hand with horse and whatever. There's a guy on there named Eustace in the hills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Eustace is a weird guy, okay, but he does things the old-fashioned way, and people pay him to go and be his apprentice, to watch how he does things and to try to do them like he did. This is what a disciple was back in the days of our Lord. First of all, they would sit and listen to the master's instructions. By the way, we have totally lost that in our generation. Did you all hear me? Lost it. We live in a Twitter world. People are saying that the attention span used to be 8 to 10 minutes long. That means that every 8 minutes a good speaker is telling something to make you laugh. Or he's giving your mind a break. Because if not, you can't, you can't hold on more than 8 minutes. You're cooking chicken. You're doing something else. You're, you're giving your mind a break because our mind hasn't been stretched The average attention span today, there's debate over this. Is it two minutes? Four minutes? They don't know, but it's less than half of what it used to be. Boy, you're talking about a job for a teacher. School teachers? School teachers? Well, yeah. Amen. I got an amen this morning. I'm a... This is so true. And I want you to hear something else. Screen time. You know, everybody goes through this battle with their kids. It's like fighting the devil. Every kid has to have a phone. When you give them these little devices, what happens? They're addictive. They know this. The, the, the founders and originators of these devices know that there's an addiction to the brain with a screen. But what has happened, and Karen actually shared an article with me, is they have customized everything so much now. We have our own music that we listen to. We don't have to endure anything on the radio that we don't want to hear. We can go to Spotify and create my favorite list, and I don't have to hear one thing I don't want to. And on my screen, I can make everything pleasing to me that I want to see, and I don't have to watch anything that I don't want to see. Let me tell you what that's done to our culture. It has put us into a little old box where we can't think, we don't want to hear anything that we don't want to hear. Well, let me help you this morning. We better hear. Because the master has something to say, doesn't he? But a disciple would sit it and listen to instruction. Listen to instruction. Number two, they would watch the master perform how he would do it. Number three, they would perform the action with his help. You know, he, he's going, don't do that. Yes, do that. Do it that way. And the learner is listening and complying. And then finally, what does the apprentice do, the disciple? They perform the action by teaching others. Now let me share a spiritual principle with you that will just shake your whole world. Jesus set this up masterfully. Do you know that in the spiritual realm, as far as God's Word... If you don't share what you know, you'll lose it. 
And I'm going to share something else with you. While you're sharing, the Holy Spirit of God does something in your heart and life. He's teaching you while you're teaching others. And He's pointing out things in your life while you're pointing out things to others. And it has to work that way. If it doesn't, it just don't work. So that's what it means to be a disciple. Now let me ask you, stop for a minute. Are you a disciple? Are you listening to Jesus? See what He's doing? Finding that? Are you doing it in your life? And are, are you finding someone else that you're doing that to and through? That, that is what a disciple is, by the way. Now, I'm going to ask a hard question this morning. This pierced me this week. Pierced me. Can you be a believer and not a disciple? Now, I'm going to have to get technical here for a minute, okay? Are y'all following me? Y'all with me? Say yes if you are. I'm sorry to treat you like I just don't want you to go to sleep on me. Wake up online. A lot of people online watch us too. Wake up, get you another cup of coffee here. But this is, this is crucial. Can you be a believer and not a disciple? Well, let me share just a couple of things here about the similarities between believers and disciples. Every believer has eternal life. Now, by the way, I know people that argue with Jesus over this. I, I shared in the early service, we've got lovely brethren all around us here that are of a different strand of theology. And in my opinion, okay, this is my opinion, and it's not humble because when you give an opinion, don't say it's humble. In my opinion, they mix up discipleship and belief. In other words, they confuse a believer and a disciple. And by the way, if you read the New Testament outside of this lens, if you don't separate these two, you're going to have confusion. Now, I need to stop because here's where my technical point comes in. If you go home and say, well, I'm going to test that preacher out. And I'm going to look up the word believe and disciple. If you go home and look those up, you're going to find them in certain contexts together. Okay? You'll find them together. But hear me closely. This is why every Christian needs to be a theologian. Every believer needs to be a theologian. If you're not, you need a pastor who, who, who knows theology or somebody in your life. A person who's not a theologian always looks for a chapter and a verse to tag on something. Stop that. Stop that. That is exegesis. That is biblical authority. Okay, so we, we, in theology, we understand the Bible is the authority. But every verse has a context, a specific meaning, and it's written in a specific era. And you can't take the application and make it the interpretation. If you do that, you're going to have total confusion. There are some places where the Bible mentions belief and discipleship together. There are other places it doesn't. It separates them. So if you're just looking in for a Bible and whatever, but theology, listen to me carefully now. It's worth coming to this whole sermon for this. I went 15 years of my life and nobody could explain this to me. 
A theologian allows this to be the sole authority and informer. It is the, it's the queen. But under this comes life, experience, other writings and books and so forth and so on. And we have to take all of this. See, a theologian has to take all of this stuff, put it together, and come out with a life application statement. So here is my theological assessment. Is there a difference between a believer and a disciple? Yes. Yes. But here are the points. Every believer has eternal life. John 1.12, listen to what Jesus said. But to all who did receive him, who what? You all say it. Believed in his name, he gave the right that word is authority, by the way. He gave the authority to become the children of God. Secondly, John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and what? Believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. What is the requirement for salvation? You all tell me. Okay, thank God. Okay, praise Almighty God this morning. That we, I'm telling you, you all listen to me. I have heard layer upon layer upon layer of what a person has to do to be saved. You've got to know this. In order to be a child of God, you have to believe the gospel of Christ for your sin. You have to. What about John 12? Is it 12 or 8? No, it's 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Can I say this? Every believer who believes has eternal life. And I can support that outside the Gospel of John. You have to believe, okay? That's point number one. Point number two, not every believer is a committed disciple. Now, I'm going to speak to you both biblically, theologically, and practically. Here we go. Biblically. Do you realize there were people in Scripture who believed but were not disciples and who were ashamed? Can I name one? Nicodemus. Can I name another one? Demas. Demas. Who was Demas? He's the one who at the end of Paul's life fell in love with his present world and has forsaken him, left him. Was he a believer? And I could get off on the different strands of theology here. And what they believe, they believe if he didn't persevere to the end, he wasn't a believer. Persevere to the end. Jesus said you have to believe. But not every believer is a committed disciple. John 8, 31 and 32. Just listen to the text. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him. If you abide in My Word, if you continue in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you should read this context. There, there were some who believed in Him, but they were afraid. They were in bondage. And they were in bondage to the fear of man. Look in John chapter 12. Great passage. Wish I had time to preach it. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities 
believed in him. Many of the authorities, this would be like Congress, Senate, Supreme Court. Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. They were, you all ready for this? They were ashamed. They were believers. They believed in him. But they were ashamed. You all want me to get down and get close to the corn row this morning? You ever been ashamed of him? You ever been ashamed of him? Don't, don't sit there and lie to me. I've been right there with you. I've been ashamed of him too. But you know what? As soon as I was, it was like an arrow from heaven came down and went, Coward! You coward! Y'all like conviction like that? You say, well, conviction doesn't happen to me like that. Well, I'm glad it does me. I, I told you last week, I need it clear. Don't you be ashamed of me. You, you don't be ashamed of me. They did not confess him so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They wanted their place to be seen. Oh, how we do this in life, don't we? We have to bow to every man's opinion of every little thing. And if we don't bow to fit their grid of holiness, cast us aside. Listen to what Jesus says. They, John, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is a difference between a disciple and a believer. Are you hearing me? They care more about their personal, what people think of them, than they do what God thinks. I'll give that to you next week. That's, that's a free one right there, okay? They care more about what others think than they do what God thinks. That is a difference between a disciple and a believer. But now to my point, number three, Jesus' goal in every one of our lives is to turn believers into disciples. And then disciples, obviously, into a disciple maker. Now, I thought long and hard about this. And I began to pray. God began to convict me greatly. Greatly. Over my life. Okay, my family, my church. You know, God put Brian and I as under shepherds of our church. Our responsibility here is to hear from God. Look out into our community to the needs. See our people. Get your gifts and your abilities and your talents connected and reach our community. That's our goal, by the way. Do you hear me? Our goal is not to come here and just be a refuge in the holy huddle. We are to go. We are to go and make disciples to show people that Jesus in our life makes a difference. He makes a difference in how I work. He makes a difference in how I raise my children. He makes a difference in how I work as an employee or as an employer. Changes my whole life. And I think it's time Christians let that be known. What's the value of coming to church wasting a whole hour of my life to listen to somebody yell at me? I'll tell you the difference when Christ lives through you. He changes your life. So now let's ask this question. Or I'm going to make a statement first, right? Salvation is free. It's free. But I want you to mark this down because this is where I think the disconnect comes in churches. 
Salvation is free, but discipleship is going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Now, I've got to go to Luke chapter 14, and if you have God's Word, you should turn there this morning. Because I'm going to finally get into this passage, and I'm going to get into it next week too, but I want to give you a little backdrop here. Right before this is told in Luke, by the way, and if you ever want to, don't just go to a gospel, by the way, and just read the passage and then try to make it make sense. Get a good commentary like the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Two volumes covers the Old Testament and the New. Go to the flyleaf of the Gospel of Luke. Look at the passage you're looking at and look at the big outline that author gives you. If you look at Luke 14, he is in a context of going from Galilee to Jerusalem And as he's going, he's facing opposition. They're opposing him. So when this story is put in this context, it's in the context of people who didn't like Jesus. That helps you when you go read this. Jesus was invited to a house where a guy wanted to feed him, and Jesus said, let me help you a little bit, sir. The next time you offer a feast, don't give it to your rich neighbors and all those people you like and the... Go out in and get the lame and the sick and the beggars and the blind. Go get those and bring them in. That way they won't ever, you won't ever have to worry about them repaying you. Now, does Jesus mean don't ever invite your neighbors or your body? No, please, please hear me. These were the people who had invited him there to reject him, and he was teaching them something. That means shut up and stop preaching, but I'm going to keep on going. Jesus was teaching them, this is how God operates. You see, God came to the nation of Israel to offer His kingdom to you, you high, sophisticated Pharisees who know the law and every little thing. And you can pick out a spot of sawdust and miss the tree. This is how good you are. You're good biblical exegetes, but you're horrible theologians. That's not how God operates. So then he tells them a story and he says, A man threw a banquet and said, Go out and invite these people to the banquet and fill my house up. The servant went out and the first one said, Well, sorry, sir, we bought a piece of land. We have to go see what it is. Ask for an excuse. The second one said, Well, we bought five oxen. We have to go test them out and see if they work good. Pass our excuse on. The third one said, well, I've just been married. And I mean, you know, I've been married. You don't expect me to go, been married? Are y'all listening? Three really good excuses. Really good. But when the servant went back and told the master, he was furious. You know what he said? He said, you go out into the streets and the city and you invite people to come to my banquet. The servant went out and he invited him. He said, well, sir, I did and there's still room. He said, then you go out to the country. You go down into Shawsville. Go down into Elliston. You go down into trailer parks. And you go out into places where nobody could ever come. And you invite them to my table because I want it full. And the servant did and the house was filled. And then Jesus pulled this point right here. Here here was the point. If you don't want God to use you, 
and you can come up with every excuse in the world as to why you don't want to submit and surrender to Him, God will give you that freedom. He will give you that freedom, even as a believer. I want to tell you something. He'll find somebody who will. I thought about this as our church. You know, this hit me hard, folks. I wept this week. If Trinity doesn't want to bow and meet the needs of our community, and we don't want to do the things that we're going to have to do to meet the needs of our community, listen to me, God will use another church. He, he doesn't have to have us. He wants to use us. But He doesn't have to have us. Did you know that? Is that humbling this morning? And as a Christian, as a believer, if I don't want to submit myself to Him as a disciple, I don't have to. But one day I'm really going to seriously regret it. Now let me get to the story. Quick, quick, you say, good. Listen to what the text says. Now great crowds, he left that house, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I have heard news commentators and people use this verse, and here's what people say. Everybody loves to ask me this. What does that word hate mean in Greek? What does it mean in the Greek? Like, like the Greek is going to somehow give you the great epiphany. I've studied it long enough to know that you can learn just as much out of the English if you know what you're doing and a good lexicon. You know what the word hate means? Are y'all ready for this? It means to hate. So that word by itself does not answer the question because we know from the Ten Commandments what does God tell children? Honor your father and mother. All throughout Scripture, Jesus teaches, love your parents, love your children, love your wife. So what in the world does he mean? Well, the context certainly would help us. Let's go back in that century. You ready? Put your sandals on. Put your sandals on. Let's go get back in the first century where the disciples were when they were out there by the fishing nets and Dad had started a business. And guess what Dad wanted? He wanted Son to take over the business, to be just like his dad. Well, when Jesus walked by and he saw those fishermen, what did he tell them? You follow me. Drop your nets and follow me. Mm. What did that mean? You see, shame and honor culture. If a father could not pass his business on to his son, that was great shame. Great shame. But in order for this person to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, what were they going to have to do? they were going to have to put Jesus in priority over top of their family. Can I read it this way? Because I think this is the best way to read it. He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not love less his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. If he doesn't love them less. Now, can you all imagine him pointing? To his twelve going, you know what these people forsook to follow me? This was hard. They left it all. And here's a bunch of people following Jesus around waiting for a stimulus check. We want to be a disciple. We want to be a disciple. What are you going to give us? He says, are you sure you really do? You better think about what you're saying. You want to be my disciple. You... You believe, you want to be my disciple? 
I have to come first over your family. I'm going to plow the row next week. What does it mean to put me over your family? You know, by the way, there comes a point in life when Jesus' opinion is much greater than dad's and mom's. Now, that's, that's hard, isn't it? You know, as a parent, that's hard. Let me tell you how your son can humble you. My, my son was going off to college, and he was telling me what he wanted to do, and I was begging him not to do that. I have done it before. Please, please, whatever you do, don't go into law enforcement. Not today. Go into this. You're made. Let me tell you what my son said to me. He said, Dad, Jesus needs good police officers too. So let me tell you something, Dad. Get off your holy horse. and Quit trying to tell your son everything he needs to do in life and let him listen to Jesus. Because maybe Jesus knows better. Oh, that hurt. Look at the next part. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you know what it meant in the Roman world to bear a cross? The Romans were perfectors at torture. When they sentenced someone to capital death, they would put the crossbar across their arms and oftentimes they would write their sentence across it you know, to show them that Rome defeated them. And what Jesus was saying here, to get it right down where, it, where it's at, is when you, when you say you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost you your life. All 11 of these disciples, we're back in the first century, are y'all listening? All 11 of these disciples, history tells us, died as martyrs for Jesus. Died. Church history says that the apostle Peter, when they went to crucify him right side up, and Peter said, you turn me upside down because I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. And so they flipped him upside down. This is what church history says. He was crucified upside down. Lost their heads, lost their life. Now, by the way, that was first century discipleship, and that's what Jesus was talking about. Now, that, that is the interpretation and the meaning. It may have different significance for us today. I'm telling you what the original meaning was. Are there times it may cost us our life? Yes, there are. You go to the mission field and you'll find out. You go there, you'll find out. Might do it. So be cautious. Look at the last part. For which of you desiring to build a tower, this is still in discipleship, doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Can I put that in practical application? I come forward and I, I say, Lord Jesus, I'm dedicating my life to you as a disciple. And then a week goes by and I fall in love with the world more than Jesus and I say, well, you know, I know what God wants me to do, but you only live once and, you know, I, I just need to... And what do we do? We just we go the way we know we shouldn't. Lord, I know you want me to give this up and you want me to go. But, oh God, life is short. I need to, I need to, I want to. And Jesus said, if you say you want to be my disciple and you don't count the cost, you're going to be like the foolish person that started building their foyer and didn't have enough money and had to let it sit like that for 15 years. 
But you get all your money first, and then you build it. And people say, now that church knew what they were doing, and they're ready for guests. They're ready for people. Look at the next one. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Now, you're, at, you're not at odds here. What's Jesus saying? What does he say? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for surrender. That's the point. Before you commit to discipleship, realize you're going to have to surrender. You all following the points? Boy, this is costly. Salvation is free. Discipleship is going to cost. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, by the way, in the first century, I told you that meant walk away from all of it. Now he's going to apply this to salt. We've heard this preached. Y'all have heard this preached forever and ever. We are the salt of the world. You're the salt. Listen to what he, Jesus puts this in discipleship. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Let me read it this way. If you commit to be a disciple, you really want to be a disciple, that is a good thing. But if when you become a disciple, then you decide you don't like it and you don't want it, how are you ever going to get back to where you used to be? I write Hebrews 6 right here, 1 through 10. It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. Listen to what Jesus says. If you've got ears to hear, listen. That's what I'm telling you. So, good question here. What are the steps from a believer to a disciple? I'm only going to give you two this morning. You say, well, thank goodness. Number one, we've got to have our priorities right. Jesus first. Everything else next. He has to rule it all. Not the opinions of man, not the glory of men, not position in life, not money, not this, not that. Jesus has to have it all. Are you willing to say that? By, by the way, don't just go, oh yeah, yeah. Stop. Jesus said, stop. Think. Are we really ready to let Him evaluate every area in our life and areas in our life that displease Him? Whether it be attitudes we hold toward people or things or this or that. Are we really letting, ready to let Him do surgery on us and say, Lord, You first? You first? What's the second? Planning and surrender. Count the cost and be ready to give it all up. Now, there's two steps. Two, just two. And moving from a believer to a disciple. Because remember what I told you, being a believer is easy. Being a disciple is hard, isn't it? But Jesus calls us to more than belief in the gospel. He calls us to discipleship. And I'm not going to give an invitation this morning. I'm going to warn you though. I'm going to give an invitation next week. And here's what I want you to be asking yourself all week. Be prayerful. 
Lord, do you want me to be a disciple? Is it time in my spiritual life that I move from being what I want to be and my, to your way? And by the way, when you do that, our responsibility is to help you grow as a disciple. We're willing to do that. And I happen to believe that if Almighty God gets a hold of the hearts of the people in this church, we will transform this community. Disciple or a believer? Father, thank you this morning for your word and the challenge. Pray that you'll work in our hearts, oh God. May we surrender our heart to you. And may we truly be your disciples. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.